Good morning. Uh, great to be with you this morning. My name is Bryce. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. Thanks for joining us for our online worship service. Well, I would love to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. We are continuing our series called The Unknown God, where we are getting to know the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And often when Christians talk about the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of confusion, maybe there's even some suspicion. And so what we're doing in this series is we are looking at um, John, the Gospel of John, really, and especially chapters 14 and 16, because it's there that Jesus introduces us to the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I want to invite you to stand with me. <coughs> as we give our attention to God's Word this morning. I'm going to start reading John 16, really in the middle of verse 4. There's a section heading there, probably in your translation, that says the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to Him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh God, these are words that uh, are hard for us to understand. And so we pray, uh, Father, that according to these words you have spoken through Jesus, the Son, that the Holy Spirit would become uh, more clear and well-known to us, that we might understand more fully what it means that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Would you um, be present in our midst this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated, please. This morning I want to invite you to imagine with me that you are one of the early followers of Jesus, and you have spent the better part of the last three years of your life traveling with Jesus. You have been near Jesus as he is taught in small groups and in large groups. You've had the benefit of coming and asking Jesus follow-up questions after uh, those messages where you said, Jesus, what does this mean? You've witnessed Jesus' power as he has performed miracles, as he has uh, healed the sick, as he has fed multitudes. You have been with Jesus every step along the way. And now, having followed Jesus for all this time, uh, you're sensing that there has come a, a bit of a turn in Jesus' attitude. And as you've gone up with Jesus to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, the, the most important holiday of the year, you are gathering with Jesus to celebrate this feast, this Passover. And as you do that, you have this vague sense that Jesus is about to do something significant, but the details 
uh, seem very fuzzy. You don't know what's going on, but you know it's going to be a big deal. And so you gather with Jesus and uh, 12, uh, you know, 11 other uh, of your friends in the upper room, the upstairs room of this house. And it's there that as you're celebrating the Passover, Jesus says something to you that he's said several times before, but it only now begins to click what it really means. Jesus says that he's going away. He said that but it's only now beginning to click that he's leaving. And before this reality really begins to settle in, Jesus follows up that statement that he's going to leave by saying, it's to your advantage that I go away. And maybe you wonder if you're hearing him correctly, and you lean over to the disciple next to you, and you kind of with uh, you know, a shock look on your face, did Jesus really say it's better that he goes it's to our advantage that he goes away, and before he can answer, you hear Jesus say, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I will send you the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to imagine that, and I want you to ask yourself this question. If you have right now to make the decision between Jesus in the flesh... <laughs> You could see Jesus' hand movements. You could, you could understand him in his you know, original language. You, you could have access to him. You, to, you, you could ask follow-up questions. Um, you could experience kind of the, the force and the glory and the, and the gravitas of Jesus' uh, personhood. Or you could have the Holy Spirit. Which one would you choose? I mean, it's such a simple question that I think the answer to, to, uh, to, me, to all of us is, is so obvious. We would all prefer Jesus in the flesh. I mean, we can, um, we can even imagine, uh, many of us, I'm sure, having said something like, if I had been a, uh, an eyewitness, if I had lived at the time, if I had seen Jesus do his miracles, surely my faith would never doubt him. Surely it would be preferable to us to have Jesus in the flesh. We can understand what it would mean to be a follower of Jesus if we had a physical, his physical presence with us. We could follow him. Surely we think that, you know, experiencing his power in person would be inspiring and it would be much easier to follow him if we experienced him in the flesh. But what do we really mean by the Holy Spirit? Uh, what does it mean that that uh, it's better for us that we have the Holy Spirit. Um, who is he, and what does it look like to follow him? Who is he? Who is this character? And so Jesus, there in the upper room, senses the response of his followers, uh, people very much like us, to this news that he's going away. And in verse 6, he says this, Because I've told you that I'm leaving, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus seizes his disciples and he realizes that this news that he's leaving is leaving them heartbroken. They don't know what they're going to do. And Jesus follows it up and says, I have some good news for you. <laughs> Jesus, seeing that they are heartbroken, wants to comfort them. He loves them. Um, and so he's going to give them good news. No, 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 Jesus says, you don't understand. It's better for you that I go because if I go... The Holy Spirit will come. He, uh, he will come. And here's the thing. Jesus says, 
Here's the good news. Here's the comfort. Uh, you're heartbroken. Jesus says, it's better that I go, because if I go, then the Holy Spirit will come, and what he's going to do is he's going to convict. <laughs> Isn't that great news? I mean... Who wouldn't want that? We get out of Jesus in the in the flesh, or the Holy Spirit, who's going to come and convict us? Um, I wonder if at that moment a few of the disciples wondered if Jesus had actually lost it. You know, we've been following this guy; he's been holding it together really well, but he's finally cracked. Because when we think of things that, uh, when we think of things that somebody might say to comfort us, I mean, have you ever gone to visit a friend in the hospital? Have you ever um, sat with someone who has just received devastating news? Have you um, been with a friend on their deathbed, a loved one? In those moments where someone that you care about is confronting a profound loss, you want to comfort them. How many of us would think that the way to comfort a loved one in, the, in that sort of moment would be to convict them. Um, this hardly seems like comfort at all. It sounds like the sort of news that we would need to be comforted from, not the sort of news that would actually be comforting. But Jesus expands and he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Yay! <laughs> but Jesus insists that this is good news. And I have to admit that this is hard to understand. Uh, this is one of the harder passages that I've wrestled with uh, in, in months. And uh, just understanding what Jesus is saying here and what it means, I think, takes a bit of work. And so what I want to do in the, in the message this morning is just look at this at, um, kind of a, a, in a simple way. And, and, and what I want you to see is this, what Jesus actually says. Like, what does it mean? What are the words that he articulates actually mean what does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? And then why is that good news for us? So first, what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, what is this teaching about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says is an encouragement to us? We saw last week that um, in, in John 14, and he uses the word again here, um, but the word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit is the word in Greek, paraclete. It means the one who comes alongside you to encourage you, to teach you, and to defend you. The Holy Spirit is your advocate. He is the one who defends you against uh, accusation. But here, it sounds like Jesus is saying almost the opposite. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. The word that Jesus uses is, I know I've been dropping these like Greek bombs on you every week, so I might as well continue. Uh, the word convict in Greek is the word alenko, which means to cross-examine or to question someone in order to show holes in their story. I mean, that's what a, that's what a, a prosecutor does, right? He questions the witness in order to uh, show the holes in their defense. Jesus is saying that our advocate and our defender has become our prosecutor. And that sounds very strange. How can that be? How can he be the advocate and the prosecutor? It seems like a contradiction. How can the one who is on your side now be the one who's pointing out holes in your story, in your defense? It sounds like a contradiction. 
but it's not. And I think every parent knows this. Um, every friend knows this. We all know this in a sense. I mean, think about this. If I'm crossing a busy street with my kids, and uh, we're kind of hurrying to get across the street before traffic comes again, and one of my kids stops to pick up, I don't know, a quarter, let's say. My kid stops in the middle of the street to pick up a quarter. What do I do? I run over and I grab them and I pull them out of the street. And then I look at them and I say, what are you doing? Are you thinking here at all? You could have been killed, right? You see, it's because I love my kids that I have to question the logic of what in the world are you doing here? It's because I love my kids that I am incredulous at their failures because I want them to live. That I question them because I want them to grow, I want them to learn. It's because of love that I poke holes in their silly defenses. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. It's because the Father loves you, it's because Jesus cares for you. It's because the Holy Spirit wants you to live that he comes to poke holes in your defense in order to help you see the greatness of your need for God. It's because the Holy Spirit wants to drive you to Jesus that he pokes holes in your defense. So Jesus says that generally, right? Generally, the Holy Spirit comes to convict, but then he goes deeper than that. And he says that the Holy Spirit convicts in three ways. And if you really want to understand the gospel, you've got to understand these three ways that the Holy Spirit convicts. Because uh, the more I dug into this this week, the more I'm convinced that the reason that that Christianity is so anemic in our time is because we only believe one or maybe two of these things about the way the Holy Spirit convicts us. If you want to see the depth and the breadth of the gospel, you've got to understand these three ways that the Holy Spirit brings conviction. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, what does that mean? Well, first, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, Jesus says, because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because the world doesn't believe in Jesus. C. Everett Koop uh, was the Surgeon General uh, for most of the 80s in the United States. He was a very accomplished pediatric surgeon. Um, the Associated Press says that C. Everett Koop is the only Surgeon General to ever become a household name. Uh, he died a couple years ago, very well thought of. Um, and in his autobiography, C. Everett Koop talks about how he became a Christian. And uh, he, he, he tells the story that uh, as a young doctor, he was working at a hospital in Philadelphia. I don't know if we have any friends watching in Philadelphia this morning, but uh, C. Everett Koop was a pediatric surgeon at a hospital in Philadelphia, and he began to attend 10th Presbyterian Church where Dr. Barnhouse was the pastor uh, at the time until about 1960 when he passed away. And there's a young physician, a young doctor, uh, having grown up in a Christian uh, family, C. Everett Koop begins to attend uh, weekly services at 10th Press and listen to Dr. Barnhouse preach. 
And he says that week in and week out, he would go and he would sit in the church and mentally in his head, Coop would argue with what Barnhouse was saying. And he would listen to this preacher uh, speaking about the truths of the Bible and he would think to himself, that's stupid, that's wrong, I don't like that, I disagree with that. And he said this went on for about a year. And in his autobiography, Coop writes this. He says, I began to realize I was only a nominal Christian. You know, it's interesting when we, when we say, uh, when we use the phrase nominal Christian, we, we tend to think of that as somebody who is um, sort of marginally committed to Christianity. But what that phrase really means is, I was a Christian in name only. I began to realize I was a Christian in name only. I was a nominal Christian trying my best to be decent. And that all my efforts to make myself a better person were of no avail. Do you see what he's saying? C. Everett Koop says, I was trying to be a decent person. I was doing a lot of good things. And he was doing a lot of good work. I mean, he, like obviously, he became a Surgeon General. He, uh, he was a very good, accomplished person. And in comparison to other people, he was doing a very good job. And as long as that was his frame of reference, he says, I was a Christian in name only. I claimed the name of Christ, but there was no transformative power in my life. But he became an actual Christian when he realized that he needed help. That all of his effort in making himself better was to no avail. Friends, can I tell you something? You will never be a Christian. You will never understand the power of the cross until you understand your need for it. Until the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they don't believe in Jesus. If you compare yourself to other people, if you sit in church and look around and say, I am an accomplished pediatric surgeon, I am better than all of these people, then you will think of yourself as a very decent person. But if you begin to compare yourself not to the other people around you, but to Jesus, the standard of perfection, then you will begin to see how much help you truly need. And the cross will never be powerful in your life until you recognize how much you actually need it. Think about this. If I were to text you this afternoon and say, hey, I'm going to drop off a load of groceries for you tomorrow. Most of you would think, okay, I mean, that's kind of weird, but whatever. But you might be a person who has a, a compromised immune system. Or for some reason, you are at greater risk to the current pandemic. And if I was to text you and say, tomorrow, I'm just going to, you know, we don't have to say hi or anything, but I'm just going to drop like a month's worth of groceries off at your door. What would your reaction then be? Your reaction then would probably be something like, wow, that's incredible. Thank you so much. But if you were a person who said to me, as somebody said to me recently, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my house. And if I had the ability, which I don't have, to say, I'm going to pay off the debt on your house. Not only am I going to fill your cupboards with groceries, but I'm going to cancel the debt and make it so that you never have to worry about losing your house again. Well, then what would you say? You would say, oh my gosh, you are my Savior. 
<laughs> See, do you understand that if you, if you have very little perception of your own need, then an offer of help is actually offensive. You me? I don't need any help. But if you're in desperate need, if you know the greatness of your need, then an offer of help brings eternal gratitude. Do you believe in Jesus? Because it all depends on how aware you are of your own need. The Holy Spirit shows us our need and points us to the cross. Until we realize our need for the cross, the cross will only be a concept. But it's when we recognize the depth of our need for Jesus cleansing, that the cross moves from concept to actual power. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and then points us to Jesus. Jesus covers our guilt, and that is good news. That is really good news. And I'm guessing that for most of us watching and listening this morning, that's not really new news, but it's very good news, isn't it? It's very good news. But I'm concerned that for many Christians, that's kind of where the gospel stops. But Jesus goes much further. The Holy Spirit convicts us concerning sin, but he says the Holy Spirit convicts us concerning righteousness. Now, what in the world does that mean? Here's the problem. I think most Christians alive today, this is the way we think of ourselves. You know, uh, I'm doing okay on my own. Um, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person, so I do what I can, and then I've got Jesus to kind of fill in that last 20%, 10%, you know, wh whatever number you put on it. Jesus covers my guilt. He helps me get the rest of the way there, but that's about it. So let me ask you this question. Why are there so many Christians who are still so defensive? Or why are Christians people who can talk so uh, freely about how, how incredible it is that Jesus has forgiven us, and yet we can be so condemning of those who don't share our views and opinions? Or how can we say as Christians that the gospel is the power of God, and yet so often we live such powerless lives? There's a disconnect, isn't there? And I believe it's because most Christians today know what it means that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and Jesus cleanses us, but we do not understand what it means that Jesus convicts us concerning righteousness. We believe that Jesus frees us from our guilt, but we don't have any idea what this thing about righteousness means. Friends, the word righteousness it means rightness. It means to be right with someone. It means to be acceptable. Your righteousness is the thing that you hold on to to show other people and yourself that you are acceptable. And it is possible, and many, many, many of us are living, like, it's great that Jesus forgive, forgave me for my sin, but in some ways we feel like he just kind of cancels these technicalities. Like God's just uptight about sin. And yeah, great, I guess Jesus paid for that, and so that's great. But what I really need to be able to look myself in the mirror in the morning is to be successful at work. But what I really need to take myself seriously is for my children to affirm me. Or we might say, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm a better person than 
my spouse. See, um, the Holy Spirit convicts us concerning sin is about Jesus covering our guilt. But righteousness is about our shame. Guilt is, I have done these things that are wrong. Jesus paid for that. But shame is about, not just I've done things that are wrong, but I am wrong. At the foundation of who I am, I am deeply insecure. Something about me deep inside my core is is not at rest. And while I may believe that Jesus covered my guilt, if I'm honest, it doesn't feel like it's enough. And I strive to cover my shame myself. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, convicts not just concerning sin, but also concerning righteousness. What does that mean, friends? The Father looks at Jesus and says, This is my Son, who I love. The beginning of Jesus' ministry is baptism. This is my Son. I love this kid. Right before he goes to the cross, the Father says the same thing. This is my Son, who I love. Listen to him. I'm so proud of him. I'm so pleased with Jesus, the Father says. And because Jesus goes to the Father in your place, everything the Father says about Jesus, the Father says about you. Friends, how many of us are longing to hear the voice of someone who looks at us and says, I know you, I see you, and I love you. I'm so proud of you. I mean, how many men, how many grown men would love to hear their father say, You are my son, and I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with you. Here's the good news, friends. Jesus covers your guilt, but Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your record. Jesus is the reason that the Father looks at you and says, I'm so pleased with you. Jesus is your righteousness. And what that means finally is that you can rest. And this is just going to be very brief, but what does it mean that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment? Well, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The devil, the ruler of this world, the accuser, has been condemned. He's been banished. And because the devil is banished, the one who accuses you is banished, you are safe. You're safe and you can rest. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying when he says that the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But why is that good news? I mean, it's good news, like, in in the content of what I just explained over the last several minutes. But but think about the context of what Jesus is saying here. I mean, um, this is good news, but wouldn't this be good news even if Jesus was still here in the flesh? Why does... Why does Jesus need to leave in order for this to be good news to us? Why is it better for us if Jesus departs and sends the Holy Spirit instead to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment? How, maybe more specifically, the question is this, how does this message comfort the disciples in their time of need? How would this comfort us 
Let me ask you this. When you're in a time of sorrow, what do you want to hear? What does it look like uh, to comfort someone in their sorrow? Our tendency, when we go through times of sadness, is to kind of close in on ourselves, to, um, to be concerned with ourselves and our problems. And what Jesus is doing here, when he sees that the that the disciples are sad at the news that he's going to go away, is Jesus is reorienting their lives around himself and his mission. Jesus is saying, don't wallow in self-despair, but consider the enormity of the mission that I'm calling you into. What Jesus is about to say, the next thing he's going to say in chapter 19, is he is going to pray for you as well as the disciples who are with him there. And he is going to pray that we would know the unity of the triune God. Jesus says that, that we would be drawn into the life of God himself, that we would know the love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoy, that we would experience the life of God together. What he's doing is he's calling us out of ourselves and our tendency to wallow and self-despair, and he is kind of reorienting our lives around what God is doing in the world and inviting us to join him in his mission. Think about it. If you're sitting with somebody who's in the depths of despair, what do you say to that person? You know, it's going to be okay. I'm sure it'll all work out in the end. It's, it's not really that bad. Um, I mean, sometimes it really is that bad. Sometimes it's not going to all work out in the end, Right? We have this tendency when we try to comfort a friend, a loved one who's going through sorrow, um, to speak these sort of sentimental and sometimes trite words. Even when they're cutting out of our mouths, we don't even believe them ourselves. Is that our only option? Hoping that they'll help. I mean, it's one option, but I was talking with a friend this week, and he was telling me uh, about a memorial service that he attended. And you know, sometimes we talk about, we use the phrase, a celebration of life. And, um, and uh, my friend Dennis was telling me that uh, several years ago, he was at the celebration of life for a friend of his who had died in his 40s. And he said, at this memorial service, there were 4,000 people who had gathered to celebrate the life of this man. And Dennis went on to say that over half of the people there, this man had personally led to faith in Christ. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. And Dennis begins to say that, you know, it, being there at the celebration of life, there was this overwhelming sense that I wanted to follow in my friend's footsteps. I wasn't going to do exactly the same thing that he did, but I wanted to be a part of carrying on his, you know, person, his mission in the world. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. Friends, how are you going to live your life? Or maybe I should ask this how are you going to be able to look back when you get to the end of your life? How are you going to be able to look back on your present existence without sorrow? How are you going to look back and reflect on the life that you've lived? Are you going to look back and reflect on the mission and the purpose that you have been called to and which you have lived into? Because here's the good news. You don't have to do this on your own. The Holy Spirit is in you. Jesus is saying this, it is better if I go, because as long as I am here, in the flesh, there's only one Jesus on earth. 
And Jesus it has a body. Jesus is, is in one place at a time. But Jesus is saying, if I go, then the Holy Spirit will come. And these 12 believers, these 12 followers of Jesus, uh, will quickly become 3,000 followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And those 3,000 followers will go back to their homes and they will take the good news of the gospel with them. And those 3,000 will multiply into tens of thousands within the next 30 years. And those tens of thousands of people will take the gospel to the ends of the Roman Empire and beyond. And they will multiply into millions until there are today billions of Christians. Each one a little temple of the Holy Spirit. Each Christian a little Jesus taking the mission of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So how do we do that? Well, I was thinking um, the other day about sourdough. I don't know about you, uh, all my friends are making sourdough bread now. Or maybe you're making sourdough bread. And I see these great pictures on social media of people making sourdough bread, and I think, man, that's incredible. And so I thought, I want to make some sourdough bread. And so I've got a sourdough starter that's doing its bubbly thing over there in the kitchen. Maybe by this time next week, I'll have some beautiful pictures of sourdough bread to, uh, <laughs> to share with you. But I've been watching videos about how do you make sourdough bread, and I learned something that was interesting. I, I didn't know this, that uh, all you do to make a sourdough starter is you take the simplest things in the world. You take water, and you take flour, and you mix them, and you let them ferment. And I always thought that the yeast that ferments the dough, the starter, comes from the air because there's wild yeast in the air. But what I learned is that the, uh, the yeast is actually in the flour. And so you can't use bleached flour because it won't ferment because the yeast has been killed. And so if you think about what's happening is that the, uh, the yeast that has been latent in the, in, the, in the flour this whole time is being activated as you add the water to it and it begins to rise and it begins to come to life and it begins to grow, and it begins to do something. Now, it would be really easy, wouldn't it, to just go to the store and buy a loaf of bread. But what this is you know, allowing you to do is take the simplest things in the world and activate the yeast that's already there, that's been latent with the simplest elements in the world so that you don't just buy bread, but you can actually make it yourself, and you can even, if you wanted, provide it to others. Friends, you are, I am, this kind of latent material. And the Holy Spirit is breathed into our lives to activate us, to activate us, to bring us to life, to cause us to grow and to change and to mature. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, these three things that Jesus talks about, sin and, and righteousness and judgment, are a great checklist to come back to. If you, if you feel yourself going, the gospel just does not seem to be powerful in my life. Come back, is the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin? Yes, okay. But having experienced myself to be forgiven of sin, am I then trying to live in such a way as to create my own righteousness? Because if I am, I will go out in judgment of others. I have to, I have to. You know, if I am my own righteousness, I will look down on those who don't live up to my standards. So this is a great checklist to come back to for ourselves. But it's also the way that we carry on the mission of Jesus in the world. 
You know, one of the most simple things that the Holy Spirit does, I think I mentioned this last week, is the Holy Spirit enables us to talk about Jesus. A Christian who doesn't know how to talk about Jesus, who cannot tell the story of what Jesus has done uh, in their life, who, 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 who can't explain to a friend and say, uh, you know, the, the Holy Spirit began to prick my conscience, uh, and Jesus forgave me of my sin. Well, hopefully that person is just a very young Christian. The Holy Spirit convicts us concerning sin. But the Holy Spirit also uh, convicts us concerning righteousness. The Holy Spirit enables us to talk about Jesus, but also enables us to live in such a way that we actually begin to live into who God has called us to be in Christ and display the righteousness of Jesus. What I think Jesus is actually saying in this passage is he's saying that it, Jesus is saying in his life, he's sort of exposing the lack of righteousness that is in the world just by being present. But now he says, I'm going back to the Father. And so I'm leaving you, the church, Christians, to carry on that role. It is as you live, not striving for your own righteousness, but out of the righteousness Jesus has won for you, that the futility of our world's hunger to cover our shame is exposed. And as we live that way, and thirdly, we can become people who live with righteousness and yet non-judgmentalness. It's only when Jesus has become my righteousness that I can be who I am in the presence of somebody that I deeply disagree with without shaming them and without judging them. James says that mercy triumphs over judgment. The world will never be brought to the feet of the cross because we articulate our judgmental opinions convincingly. Only as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and our righteousness and judgment will we see others come to Jesus. So let me leave with this reminder, friends, it's not up to you. You have been drafted into this mission. Jesus is saying, don't turn in on yourself, but carry on this mission that I have given you. And if we're saying, I get 80% of the way there, Jesus forgives my guilt, but man, it's a drag that he wants me to carry on this mission. Then we've only gone the first step. Jesus forgives you of your guilt. He covers your shame. And he removes the accuser so that you might be able to live the life that he has called you to live. But the good news is this. You're not doing this alone. The Holy Spirit is in you. He is active. Jesus has ascended to the Father where he's praying for you and he has sent his Spirit who now dwells inside you so that wherever you and I go, we bring the presence of God with us. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that your presence is no longer hidden away behind a curtain in a building, but that your life-giving spirit has been unleashed into the world. We thank you for the words of Jesus who helps us to know who this divine person is. Spirit, would you live in us and live through us that we might carry on the mission of Jesus in this time and in this place. Amen.